Our teaching text this morning is Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. And if you have a Shed Bible, it's on page 905. So you can follow along. Matthew 16, 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Lord be with you. Hey, my name is Tim. If we haven't met, and I have the privilege to pastor here at Mars Hill Bible Church. I also recognize that it's one thing in life to answer a question. It's another thing entirely to answer that question than with your actions or your life. It's one thing to stand at an altar and say, I do, and it's another to live and love selflessly 15, 35, 55 plus years later. It's one thing to sign up to serve your country in the military, and quite another to courageously do so in times of conflict. It's one thing to click accept on a car loan, and then quite another to feel like paying that on month 15. It's one thing to answer a question, and it's quite another to operationalize that answer over the long haul. For it's questions that change our reality, questions that we're looking at in this series we're calling Faithfully Curious, great questions of the scriptures. And today we get to get into a series of questions that make us think about other questions. Our text gives us a great example of what it means to answer with one's words and then be challenged to answer with one's life. And... We have quite a lot of ground to cover. Are we ready for this? Okay, lovely. So our text, as Lori so greatly read for us, comes out of Matthew chapter 16. And the disciples and Jesus are traveling north. 
right? Uh, I don't know if they're going to see the leaves in the fall or whatever, but they're headed north out of Galilee. They go to a couple places. They go to the Decapolis, and they go to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which they come from just before this, and they are not in Kansas anymore. Things get progressively stranger and farther from Jerusalem and Galilee as they go north. And here they get to kind of the pinnacle of their northward journey. They get to this place called Caesarea or Caesarea Philippi. Now, depending on which synoptic gospel you read, they're either about to get there, overlooking the city, or they're in it itself. In Matthew, they appear to be in the city of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this has gone by some other names over the years, um, and it is here that Jesus asked the question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? This really poignant question. And maybe, truly, this is the question for you today. And maybe as far as you need to go in this message, that through our worship and through our prayers, God has prepared you to encounter this question. Who do you say that I am? And if so, wonderful. Take a moment. What are some of the adjectives that come to mind when you think of this Jesus. This is pre the sermon, so it's not a test. What comes to mind? Who do you say that this Jesus is? Rabbi, teacher. What was that, Jim? Great physician, healer, son of God. Yeah, Messiah. So many beautiful things and so many that we hold on to. And I'm going to ask you to hold on to those for just a few more minutes. But if this is your question, don't pass it by today. And if there's some things that come to mind, hang on to those. Because the question does get answered in this particular text. The disciples give other answers first. They say to Jesus, maybe people, other people say, you're, you're John the Baptist, or maybe you're Elijah. And then he says, who do you say that I am? This particular question. And it's Peter who answers this thing. He says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Now, we can look at this and be like, was this some sort of test or like theology quiz? That once the right answer is attained and given, we can continue on with the story? I don't think we can stop at that. Because this is the same Jesus who seems to care an awful lot about how people live into their answers. Not just that they get the correct ones. Remember, the Pharisees had great theology. They had the correct answers. But then where do we go from here? Jesus seems to care an awful lot about how we live this answer out. And I think we get some clues from the particular context where they are. So this is Caesarea Philippi. You'll see this in uh, some of these pictures. Like we said, it's to the north where this question gets asked. This is far from Jerusalem. This place actually is a hotbed of paganism where there are temples to many Greek and Roman gods. 
It's not too far, even from the Jewish city of Dan. So the disciples would have known about this place, but no good Jewish boy would find himself there. See, a couple things are happening here. Um, There is a particular temple. Go to that next slide there, Bob. This is some of the ruins of the temple to Pan. Now, if you've heard of Pan, he, you may think of the Pan flute, right? There's that thing. Pan is the ancient Greek god that has the head of a goat and the body of a man, kind of like Mr. Tumnus, but like evil Mr. Tumnus, right? So that's, 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 that's what we get in a visual here for Pan. Now, Pan, though, actually didn't just get thought up by the Greeks and the Romans. Pan is the embodiment of what Baal or Baal was in all of the Old Testament. So any of those Old Testament references to Baal that you know of, Elijah, Elisha, Old Testament high places, get morphed into Pan, this Greek-named God. See, things come back around, right? So 90s style, it's coming back. Mom jeans were once for moms. Now they're out there, right? What, what was comes back in new form, which is why I'm holding on to so many pairs of cargo pants and hammer loops <laughs> with great prayer and anticipation. But this is not a new God. It's a new expression of the God. And so those who knew their Old Testament well would have all these images about this is not the place to be. This is the seat of all paganism and evil in the world. And this is where the great temple of Pan is. And these disciples are there, or at least looking into this city. So not only that, but there was a great festival that happened every year in this place. Remember the town, Caesarea Philippi. It used to be called Panius, or Banius by the Romans, with Pan being the central figure of their town. Now it gets changed to Caesarea Philippi, to honor Caesar and King Herod Philip, Herod the Great's son. Because in this city, there is a giant festival each year that some scholars think drew hundreds of thousands of participants. This festival was to honor, seek the god Pan. So they would call this thing Pandemonium. You've heard this, right? This this wild festival of all sorts of drunkenness and debauchery and exploitation and temple prostitution and bestiality and worship of these gods, which was the religious side. And as religion gets manipulated so, so does economics. And all of this was meant to give tribute and hundreds of millions of whatever their dollars were to Caesar, to curry political favor. So that's the thing. Whether that was happening or not, while the disciples were there, they would have known about it. I mean, this is like a wild thing. It's like Burning Man, but instead of by a desert, it was by a river, right? This is not the place they wanted to be, and Jesus brings them here. And there's something else that goes on in this town as well. There's a river. So if you look at the picture that's on the screen right now, uh, go back one, Bob. There is a hole in this rock, this big rock. And on this rock was built both the temple of Pan, uh, shrines to Caesar and to Zeus, but there was a spring that would come out of the hole in the background there, then switch pictures, and it would give uh, water to the river. Now, in the ancient world, springs were not understood as kind of the outflowing of an underground aquifer with balanced pH water or whatever. Like, this was pre-science. A spring 
which scholars say they could not find the origin of, was a place, a gate, if you will, to the spirit world. This was a doorway into another realm, the underworld in this case. In fact, they would call this opening the gate to Hades, or gates of death, or gates of hell. Which may ring a bell from our teaching text today. And so it's here that Jesus says to his disciples, particularly Peter, that you are the rock on which I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Knowing full well that the example is right in front of them, fresh in their minds of what this means to make the claim that my church built on this rock, which are humans, will not be overcome by the churches and the temples that are built on these rocks called the gates of Hades that attract thousands and hundreds of thousands of people and dollars and fame and influence. Jesus is indeed saying that this thing that I am doing will not be overcome by that. And that's a good word right off the bat for us. Jesus here is pointing at the text in John 1 where the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. That the church of Jesus Christ will not be overcome by death or destruction, disease, hopelessness, decline, corruption, threats of violence, splits, or schism. They will not overcome Christ's church. And Paul picks up on this later in Romans 8. Who shall se- what shall separate us from the love of God? Hardship, trouble, persecution, or famine? No, in these things we are more than conquerors. Christ's church will not be overcome. Amen. And... We put ourselves in the disciples' shoes and realize there's more to this text. We can say such things with great confidence a couple thousand years later. And while those who walked with Jesus, I am sure, had their hearts strangely warmed by his promise that the gates of hell, that what you see around you will not overcome my church that I am building, I'd imagine these disciples have quite another challenge in front of them, wondering, is this actually true? Remember, these are the same disciples that in Matthew 18, a few chapters later, are going to be the ones who sing, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? You don't, you don't get it, do you? It's not about who's greatest. And so I'd imagine these are the young men who are asking the question, how then, Jesus, is is the thing we're doing, we're like 13 broke dudes from the sticks, how is this going to be more powerful than that, that draws hundreds of thousands? They're probably huddling amongst themselves after this conversation, wondering, like, do, do we need a new leadership structure? We're going to need some PR. Those people have political power and cultural influence. Jesus actually just told us, don't tell anybody about me. He doesn't even get how he's going to be forming something that's more powerful than that, does he? How is this whole equation going to work? The stakes seem set against them. How is us, this little band, going to be more powerful than that thing? 
And those are big questions. Some of the latest Barna research tells us that the Christian church in America over the last 30 years is at a 40% decline. Recently, I was doing some reading by Ricky Schlott. She wrote The Canceling of the American Mind. She says this, that Gen Z, young people, have inherited a post-hope world stripped of what matters. Instead, we've been offered a smorgasbord of easy and unsatisfying substitutes. The world, particularly the world the church is handing us, seems devoid of meaning, of work, of country, sense of meaning in spirituality. We see a growing part of our country with a steep rise among young people that see the church as irrelevant, racist, hateful, sexist, anti-homosexual, too political, hypocritical, and out of touch. So how is it, Jesus, that this thing that you're building is really going to be stronger than that thing, than that mass of political power and influence and cultural relevance? We're just a small group of people that don't seem to be adding to our number daily, Jesus. How is this true? We can't even seem to win over youth sports schedules. How does this equation work? How is this actually stronger than that, Jesus? How can we build something that can stand up to that kind of opposition. We can't. In fact, the answers to the thing we're seeking are in the text, that we cannot build this thing, nor does Jesus ask the disciples to. He's already answered their hidden question that I will build my church. We are more than conquerors through him who first loved us. It is this Jesus Christ, the builder and the architect and the completer of the church. It is Christ's church and not ours. Remember, right before we get this story, Jesus takes a few loaves and a few fish and feeds thousands. And the miracles... There are so many, and yet the disciples ask, how? We ask, how, O oh Lord? This doesn't look like I thought it would. So we ask, what kind of church is that? And how can I participate? How do I take my answer of this is who Jesus is, this is who I say he is, to how do I participate in a church that is not overcome by incredible hardship and against all odds, culturally, numerically, in terms of influence, we begin with saying it is not our church. It belongs to Jesus Christ. It is called the body of Christ that we get welcomed into. But this body is Christ-built. This church is God-centered. It is spirit-powered. This church is people-partnered. We get invited in. Not for our own power or our merit or even our good ideas. But Jesus continues to walk with us. I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends, Jesus says. 
And this church is also not overcome. You hear echoes of Isaiah 43 that when you walk through the waters and the waves, you will not be overwhelmed, even though it is stacked against you. The church then, what does it look like? How do we participate in that kind of church? The church not built on its own power. A favorite quote that I keep coming back to over the years is this by theologian, missiologist Leslie Newbegin. says, we are to exist, this is as the church, not first for ourselves, but for the world around us. As a sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's present and coming kingdom." Notice, nowhere in the scriptures do we say, see, the church is to exist as cultural warriors, fight pickers, but as those who are a sign of the coming kingdom. It points to something. We point to what is greater than ourselves. We are an instrument. We are used and operationalized by Christ in whose body we dwell. And we are a foretaste that in the way we are together, we offer a taste of the coming and full realized kingdom of God. In the things that are under our influence as believers, are we shaping things that are a foretaste of the kingdom of God in our business practices, in our HR manuals, in our classrooms, in our homes, in our tables, in our counseling offices, in our social media posts? Are we offering a foretaste of the kingdom of God? How do we get in on this kind of church? We return back to Jesus. We look at the one who's the builder and the architect, the one who's building it on a rock. This is always the call through all of the Old Testament is return. Return to me, people. Second Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land and forgive their sin. Humility, humility in calling on the name of the Lord. Humility is tough for us. We're not always great at that, are we? It's the disciples, again, who two chapters later, who's the greatest? Which one of us is the most awesome disciple? Who will be the best in the kingdom? Humility seems a long way off and calling on God's name in prayer. But the answer then is how, how do we get to be this kind of church? Also comes in the text. The humility gets fleshed out. This is chapter 16 Immediately following the story, this next side slide says, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will find it. The thing that Jesus is inviting them to is to give all of their life, to lay down their expectations and their power and to take up life in humility in the kingdom of God. That is how this church comes into being. That's our role to play. So I think we ask ourselves two questions. One is, and what do we need to lay down in light of this? 
What idols do we hold on to? In our world, we worship, we think of idols, even ancient idols, as things that are shrines, temples, artifacts. But you look at most of the world, over most of time, while those things existed, folks in the ancient world had family idols, miniatures of those great temples that they would carry with them. And it's one thing to not show up to the great cultural idol. It's another to hold onto that idol in secret. And so I think that one of the questions is for us is how do we say, what kind of, how do we be a part of this kind of church? Is what idols do we need to lay down corporately? Our grasp on cultural power and influence. Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in these things. In fact, at the end of our teaching text, verse 20, chapter 16, he says, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Don't post about this. I do think there's a time and a place to share, to speak. But it doesn't seem like Jesus' driving force is cultural influence and power. And while in so many ways this particular church had been formed as refuge and reaction from the churches who were seeking that in one particular way, we too have been formed as a place that seeks cultural power and influence. And so what does it look corporately to lay that down and to be willing to be led by the Spirit into what God has next for us? Say, the way we have always done something may not be the way forward. And we're going to be okay with where God leads us. That's something we can lay down. And then individually too, what does it look like for us to lay something down so we can pick up the cross? If you go back to that last slide in Matthew 16. What does it mean to lay down for you? What is the thing you don't want to have a conversation with God about? What's the thing you don't want to talk to your counselor about really? That you're behind the conversation, you're saying, please don't ask me about this. That may be a clue to what it is you need to lay down to pick up life in the kingdom of God. To take part more fully in the church that will not be overcome by the gates of hell. And so then what do we take up? What do we actually do? To be this kind of church, to be this kind of person as part of Christ's body. What do we take up that is positive? How do we operationalize our answer? I think back to Jesus, the answer to this is in Christ's original question, where we started. Who do you say that I am? Recall your answer. Who is this Jesus? Who is Christ to you? Good, beautiful, healer, savior, shelter, refuge, compassion, companion, mercy, boundless grace, supremely generous. Whatever it is, fill in that blank. Who is this Jesus? A.W. Tozer has this quote that says, the thing that comes to mind when we think of God It's the most important thing about us. 
What comes to mind when you think of who is Jesus? That, my friends, I think is the clue to a tangible step this week to represent that thing in the world in the most clear and beautiful way. Because Christ has shown a particular aspect of God's character to you. And I think that's a way that we can then bring that particular thing to the world. Being a part of a church, that is not overcome. There's a lot to think about. This text covers a lot of ground. And where the Spirit has prompted your mind, slow down and dwell there. But the simplicity of it is we get to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Take that answer and operationalize it in your life. Who is this Jesus? And then how do you, in the most clear and beautiful way, put that into practice? Put it on display for the world. Maybe for you that means a schedule change where time is what needs to be laid down for what you think of Christ is, is patient or long-suffering. For some of you, that may be a financial reality, a decision, a change, a gift, something you're not going to buy so you can give this or do this so you can do that because Christ is supremely generous. Maybe Christ is the one who is encouraging you to open your home as Denise was drawing our attention to the vast and crippling numbers of not only those who need a permanent adoptive home, but need a temporary home. Maybe you know folks who don't qualify for those numbers who need a safe place to be. Or maybe a table that is open to you or you take the table to somebody who is in need, putting Christ's goodness on display. Maybe it's a risk that you need to take because Christ is bold. The one who, in Philippians 2, left all power and emptied himself to take on the humble form of a servant. Maybe there's a risk in front of you that God is calling you to take and courage is what you need. Maybe it's the simple thing to take one obedient step towards God in prayer. One of our pastors this week was moved to simply take off their shoes in prayer, naming that was the thing that's gonna form them as an obedient vessel for God in prayer. Maybe it's something that is that small. Who is Christ to you? And then how then do we put that on display for the world? Because as we do that, we participate in the church that Christ is building. You are needed. Christ does the work. You are invited to be a part of that church together. We need one another to say, this is how I'm putting into practice who Jesus is for me. It is, in some ways, that simple. Not easy, but simple. So let us sit with this question, who do you say that I am? And then go and put that on display. All hope in Jesus, the architect and builder of the church, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is in his name that we pray and we act and we praise. And so to him be all glory 